So today we're coming on to the fifth part of our study in Esther. We're going to run six parts to this. So we'll, we'll finish next week, and then we'll move into a different uh, theme of study. Are you enjoying this? Good. You would say that, though, wouldn't you? There are tremendous lessons that we can learn from the book of Esther. And one of the things that we're going to look at today is self-control. There's an incredible, incredible passage in the book of Esther that talks about self-control. And we can learn so much from that. I mean, I, I learned an incredible lesson in self-control yesterday. I went to New Douglas Park to watch the Ackies. And as I sat there freezing and wet on my own in that massive capacity crowd, and it went to 1-1 right at the death, and then it was penalties. Well, you ever watch the penalty shootout? It's a nervous thing, I tell you. It's a nervous thing. But God's a good God, and we won. <laughs> Self-control stops bad habits. Self-control restrains us. It pulls us in. It halts us in our track. Self-control allows us to do things and to not do things. It is an incredible fruit of the Spirit. It's something that we need to possess in increasing measure. So in our studies we've seen so far that the Jews in Persia are waiting for a set day in which they're all going to be killed. The law has been set, and according to the law of the Medes and Persians, it cannot be changed. Not even the king can change that. The man who had, had arranged this to happen is now dead, Haman. He's impaled upon his own 75-foot-high pole. Ugh. His plans are, are defeated, or so it looks. But still, this day is galloping over the hill towards these people. And the king, the king has issued an incredible new decree. Do you remember last week we saw how Esther went to the king and we saw the dignity and we saw the composure and we saw the Holy Spirit move through her life and how she waited for the right time and how she used the right words and how Haman, when being accused of of, of this terrible deed against the king, suddenly we saw that, that he fell on the queen's couch just as the king walked in the room. Probably not a good idea to dive on someone's wife as they walk in the room. It's always difficult to explain. And especially when he's a king of Persia. And that was the death sentence for Haman. Do you remember that? We saw that. Now, we saw how the king of all knights suffered insomnia and asked for the, the annals of Persia to be read to him, and he discovered Mordecai had saved his life by exposing a plot years before, four years before, and he'd asked what's been done to reward this man, and that brings us right up to speed to where we are today. So in Esther 9 and verse 1 and 2, this is what we read. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. 
On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those determined to destroy them, and no one could stand against them, because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. Now, Xerxes has made another decree. He can't, he can't get rid of the one that's made. That was the law of the Medes and Persians. So he's made another one, and he said, okay, these Jews can rally together, and they can defend themselves, and they can plunder the houses and the families of those who attack them. And so the Jewish people had gathered together and organized themselves to do that very thing. He's granted them the right to defend and spoil their enemies. And so that's exactly what happens. In Esther 9, verse 3, down to verse 10, this is what we read. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps and governors and king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. And Mordecai was prominent in the palace and his reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. And the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what, pleased, what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, that's the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, now here's where you got to bear with it, okay? All those people, <laughs> the 10 sons of Haman, the sons of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. You got that little last bit? They did not lay their hands on the plunder. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. They could have. They were entitled to. That was the law the king had passed down. It was perfectly acceptable to do that, but they did not plunder those people's houses or property. They showed self-restraint. So where are we going with this, I hear you say? Haman's sons were already dead. So in 13 and 14, this is what we read. Esther has spoken to the king. She says, if it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews and Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done and an edict was issued in Susa and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. A lot of impaling going on really, isn't there? It's a pretty brutal world we're, we're dealing with here. Haman's sons were already dead. Why, why impale the ten sons? Well, you know, this wasn't peculiar to the Persians. Our own country had a habit of sticking people's heads on a pole, on bridges. It serves as a warning. It tells the populace, this man and all of his plans will never be tolerated. That's exactly what it is. It is a public statement that this will never be tolerated throughout the empire. And it's pretty bloody, and it's pretty gruesome, and it's not nice at all. But it's a statement you couldn't help but notice. This will not be tolerated again. 
But look at verse 15. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. They showed self-restraint, self-control. So often, when we've got the right to do something, we think that it's right to do something. It doesn't work like that. Just because we have the right to do something doesn't make it right to do something. And it calls for great self-control in our lives. So how does this work for followers of Jesus? And Stacy, don't worry a moment. Sit yourself down. She's just bored to death with me. <laughs> She's fine. Don't you worry about that. In Galatians 5 and 13, this is what we read. Paul writing to the church says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You see, you're, you're called to be free. You've got the right to be free. But being free isn't necessarily right if you indulge it in the wrong thing. You following me? As a believer, you are free. You are free in the Lord. But using that freedom might not always be the right thing. You can use it for all the wrong reasons. One of the things that was happening in the early church a lot was called the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You'll read this in Revelation. And Nicholas, that's why the Nicolaitans were the follower of Nicholas. And Nicholas, he really believed that to be in the world and reach the world, you had to be like the world. He was a Gnostic believer. And what that basically means is, he would say that if you worked on a building site, in order to reach those builders, you had to cuss and swear and behave like everyone else who didn't know Jesus. And that's the way you'd reach people. Not so. Not so. You see, as believers, we are free to work in the building site. But our freedom must never be used to become fleshly and carnal like that. I worked on the oil rigs as a crane driver. But I never entered into some of the things that others were doing. The result, many men came to faith in Jesus. I used my freedom for godly purposes. So just because we've got the right to do something doesn't mean that it's right to do it. It's the something that we've got to exercise self-control with. So for example, Paul says that no one has to judge us as with holy days or what we eat or what we drink. He says all things are permissible. But he also tells us not to cause a stumbling block to another believer. So my right to do something must always submit to whether I'm going to cause you a problem by me doing that. But if I insist on my right to do that, regardless of what you think, then I'm misusing my freedom. Making sense? Okay, that's exactly what the Jews were doing. They were showing restraint. In Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul writes this, 
I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Right. Do not conform. That means be molded. It's the idea of pouring jelly in a mold, then turning it over, and you've got a little party piece, haven't you? How many of you have done that? You know, the little party jelly thing. I know you have. Don't pretend you haven't. That's what it means, conform, molded. Right? So he says, don't be molded to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't let it make you look just like them. But, now whenever you see a but in the Bible, you know there's something big coming. But, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So how are we transformed? By the singing of songs? By the attending of church? No. We're transformed by the renewing of our thought patterns. The Bible says elsewhere, we have the mind of Christ. But you can't have the mind of Christ if you sound and look like the world. And if it's shaping you into its image, then you know what? You're not transformed. You need to be transformed. And it starts here in our thinking. One of the classic ways of showing that we're not transformed is when we see people saying, oh, I'm just not, I'm just not worthy of that. That's why Jesus died for you. That's where your worth comes from. So sort those things out. We have to learn to listen to the voice of truth rather than the voice of the tempter and accuser. It is the voice of truth that transforms our mind and our thinking. He says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's good will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when are we able to test what God's will is? Once we've stopped being molded into the shape of the world, and once we're transformed in our thinking, and our thoughts become God's thoughts, and our ways become God's ways. Now, if I was to say to you, put off the old and Most people would say put on the new, but that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says put off the old and be transformed in your mind and then put on the new. It's a little bit like it happened to me once and I got into a lot of trouble from my mother. I was, I was in a hurry and we were playing rugby and it was a winter's day and I was filthy and I just put my clothes on. I didn't, didn't shower. I just put my clothes on and went home. Wow, wow. That did not go down well. You see, I looked all right on the outside, but I'm telling you, the stink was coming through with every passing moment. And there was, there was a big to-do about that. <clears throat> so, Mum, if you're watching this, I'm, I'm sorry about that all these years later. And that's what happens when we don't sort our thinking out. We simply window dress. And we simply put on the Sunday best. But really, we are, as the Scripture says, a whitewashed sepulchre. Look good on the outside, but full of bones inside. There's no life. We've got to have our thinking 
transformed and it calls for self-control. This is exactly what's happening here. We are different from this world. The Jews were different from the Persians. We don't retaliate. We are the people of God. We are the sons and daughters of the King. What would Jesus do must always be first and foremost in our mind. We are people who forgive. We are not those of the world. In Romans 12, 3 and 5, we read this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body and many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In this room today, from that little one right up to this platform, there is no hierarchy. There is utter equality before Christ. The different things we do is about functionality, not about status. Now, God loves to hear that little voice just as much as He loves to hear this kind of voice. She's doing what she knows what to do. I'm doing what I'm called what to do. And every stage in between, we are like cogs in a machine. We are, frankly, the Christian life is a dance. And we are dancing together. That's what's happening. Some of us are a little better at dancing than others. Some of us stand on each other's toes during the dance. Some of us are just practicing dancing. Some of us are expert dancers. But together, we're dancing. That's what's happening. We're all equal before God. There is no status before the Lord. Before the cross, all are equal. They're equal in their need, and they're equal in the level of forgiveness He brings. All of us. We are family. We're in this together. We need all of us dancing together. In Romans 12, 17 to 21, this is what we read. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's not always possible to be at peace with people who just want to fight with you. But it is possible to show self-control and have a very different response to them. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And don't overcome him by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Lord is our defender. We're not called to fight with people. The Lord is our defender. Let me tell you some personal stories. Years and years ago, in the 90s, I was a bivocational pastor. I was working for the local authority. I was working about 60 hours a week, and we'd planted a church a few years before, and the church was growing rapidly. And it was killing me. And we had, we had little ones at home. We had two little ones at home. 
And uh, that was the only job. Kath was looking after the, the little ones. It was hard. It was hard. And then to cut a long story, the job was, was taken away from me. The powers that be wanted to save money, but they didn't want to offer redundancies. So they simply found a way of taking the job away, making it impossible. Everything within me wanted to cry unfair and to fight back. And the Lord spoke so clearly to me. He said, Ken, I do not want a word coming from you. And the lies that was told about me were horrendous. Not only was the job taken away, it seemed necessary to try and discredit and blacken my, my very character. And so that was happening. And after a few months, the Lord spoke to me again. And I said, Lord, what do I say in reply to all of this that's going on? What do, what do I do? We had no money. We had two little ones. We were pastoring a church. This was terrible. We had mortgage to pay. These were tough times. And so they wanted to take the job away. So what they'd done is they'd, they'd put me out on leave until they could find a reason to lose the job. There was no reason for me to be out on leave. And there was no salary coming in. The whole thing was horrendously dishonest. And so I went to this meeting with them and, and I said, Lord, what do I say? And the Lord said to me, Ken, I want you to say one word, two words, I resign. And that's what I did. Well, the very next day, our church came to us and said, Ken, we've been thinking for a long time about salarying you. How do you fancy working full-time for the church? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? All of those people who were part of that and colluded in that whole thing lost their jobs within a period of weeks. All from separate, unrelated, uncovered things that they had done. All of them lost their jobs. Self-control. Restraint. But everything within me wanted to fight back. But when we let God defend us, incredible, incredible things happen. Very difficult situations like that. I remember also just after that, we bought a little house down in, in uh, the south coast, down in Hastings. We paid £45,000 for this little house back in the early 80s. And that was a lot of money to us. And then it went into negative equity. For 11 years, that little house was worth £29,000. We couldn't even sell it. We couldn't even sell it. Our mortgage trebled, and the house was in negative equity. Many of you will remember those years. They were really difficult years. And you know what we did during that time? One day, Kath would have a meal so we could feed the children and I wouldn't eat. The next day, I would have a meal so we could feed the children and she wouldn't eat. And this went on for a very long time. But the Lord delivered us from that. And we kept her home and we owed nothing because we trusted him. And the amount of people who would turn up at our door, and we shared it with no one, the amount of people who'd turn up at our door with all sorts of gifts was unbelievable. God will defend you when you show self-control and do the right thing.
So there are four painful things of the past that we really need to learn to overcome. And we learn them so much from the book of Esther. And the first one is this. We need to learn to overcome people of the past. People who have wronged us or people whom we have wronged and those wrong relationships are actually marrying our current relationship right now. When we pastored one of the churches in the south, it was a big church, and we'd planted the church and it had grown quite large. I was walking into a meeting one day, it was a Friday, and I, I won't mention names, I was walking into a meeting and this, this guy whom I had, uh, I had sat at his bedside, he had a life-threatening uh, spinal condition and a brain condition, and I'd prayed with him for days, I'd never left his bed in the hospital for days. The Lord had healed him. We're walking and he put his arm around me and he said, Ken, I want you to know I am right with you. On Sunday morning, his resignation was lying on, on my doormat when I came home from church and a big long list of everything he didn't like. Incredible. Incredible. What do we do with situations like that? In 1997, on New Year's Eve, our phone rings. We had a house full of young people. Uh, Kath and I used to do that a lot on New Year's Eve. And it's about quarter to, to 12 at night. The phone rings. I answer the phone. And it's a, a particular pastor. We were denominational leaders in those days. It was a particular pastor. And he was mad with me. And to this day, I don't know why. We never quite found out why. But I picked up the phone. I said hello. And he launched into a tirade of personal abuse and criticism. And then about two minutes to midnight, he stopped and said, oh, and Happy New Year, and put the phone down. <laughs> That's how 1998 began for Kath and me. There are times when we really need to deal with people of the past. And for years, that was a difficult and painful thing for us. We've got to let these things go. There's people who have hurt us, and those people whom we have hurt. We've got to let it go, and we've got to let God bring a new day. The second thing is we need to deal with events of the past. Some of us, our life is formed by what happened in the past. For the older ones amongst us, who remembers when Kennedy was shot? Why? Did you know the guy? When Armstrong walked in the moon... Remember that one? Hmm? When Princess Diana was killed. Remember that one? Mm -hmm. So often our life is shaped by memories of the past. And if we constantly measure our lives by events that happened, then the outlook becomes very fearful and our, neg and our attitude very negative. I wish, I wish, I wish I could wind back the clock in certain moments of my own life and not have said something I said or not have done something that I did. But I can't. But I can invite Jesus to come and take lordship and sovereignty over those moments. These things are perpetual anchors holding us back from our destiny and where God wants us to be. The third thing is circumstances of the past. Conversations you've had, Arguments, situations, mistakes, loss of a job, 
painful life moments, all of these things will hold you back. Learn to let them go. And the fourth thing is decisions of the past. I don't know about you, but I've made some howlers over the years. Some real belters of mistakes. I'm going to confess to that. How about you? I've really got it wrong more than once. But just to encourage you, I've got it wrong right a few times as well. It's not all bad. <laughs> wrong decisions, foolish decisions, weak decisions. The devil loves to torment us over these things. For years... I was always wary about taking speaking engagements at certain conferences. Okay, I spoke at Spring Harvest a few times, and I was always wary about going to one of the, the Spring Harvest campuses to speak because I knew that there were people there from another church group that I'd made a mess out of a relationship with, and I was scared of what they'd think. And the devil tormented me with that all the time. And you know what? By the time I actually plucked up the courage to approach these folks and talk to them, they put their arms around me and said, Ken, we'd forgotten all about that. How are you doing? Amazing. Amazing. And the devil torments us with this. Our relationships are way too important, way too important to be scared of fixing them. In Philippians 3, 13 to 14, Look at what Paul says, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead, comma, this guy had made some howlers in his life. Paul had some serious bad decisions behind him, persecuting the church, holding the coats while Stephen was murdered. A whole host of bad decisions. He knows a thing or two about this. Look what he says. Forgetting that, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What a philosophy. Forgetting what's behind. You can't change it. Forgetting what's behind. We press on to win the goal that lies in front of us in Christ Jesus. Let Jesus deal with your past. Engage Him in the present and walk with Him into the future. He will deal with all that's happened before. Celebrate the present. The Jews called the event Purim. And to this day, they celebrate this. In Esther 9, 17-19, we're almost done. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. This is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting and a day for giving presents to each other. A memory of a painful past becomes the grounds for celebration. Isn't that something? A memory of a painful past event becomes the grounds for celebration. They were going to die. They knew it was coming. 
And then God steps in. And all things change. Because we know that in all things, God works for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Our final verse in 28 of Esther 9. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. And I want to leave you this morning, and we'll finish Esther next week, but I want to leave you this morning with this thought. On the Friday, it looked like it was over. But on the Sunday, it had just begun. The stone was rolled away. And Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he promised to come back again and take us to be where he is. That which looked like a painful past event is a cause for celebration. What am I saying to you this morning? The same message the Jews heard. The story is not over. The best is yet to come. Let it go. People of the past, circumstances of the past, events of the past, decisions of the past. Let it go and press on towards all that God has. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you. We do thank you, Lord. And, and we realize that, that so often we make such a, a mess out of things. Well, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that you would help us to let go of the things of the past that bind us up. Father, the things of the past that cause us problems, the things of the past that are but anchors to us moving on into all that you have for us. So we give it to you, Lord, and we say, please, Lord, would you set us free to be the men and the women that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.